Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found a probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Coach of the Year, current D2 defending national champion. That's a lot, my brother. Chris Shamides. Today on OTV, we talk with Jim Trecker. If you are a soccer person and you don't know who this guy is, you should. With a career that spans more than four decades, Trecker has been a vital part of media relations, landscape, and in all kinds of different capacities in the U.S., uh, internationally since the 60s. So uh, this guy, uh, Chris, was sitting at the table that I was at when we were talking to Paul Gardner and Sunil Gulati uh, and all the soccer powers that be, Arnie Ramirez. And I just realized this guy is just walking history. Uh, he started out with the Jets, and then he got involved with the Cosmos, and then he got involved with writing the World Cup bids, and, and he was the media guy in the 94 Cup, and uh, just a, a really walking history. So I said, I got to get this guy on. Uh, we'll talk about the start of sort of uh, NASL, which you were just a baby, Chris, when NASL was happening. Young man. Young a man. young, young man, prepubescent young man sitting in a crib crying for his mama. And that was last week. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yeah, you know, he handled like Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Canaglia. You know, it was like it was a really uh, heady time for, for soccer. It sort of gave us a real big kind of sexy start. Do you remember any of the NASL at all? Yeah, I mean, that was my uh, my start was soccer made in Germany and the NASL and yeah. the Cosmos and all that stuff. And, you know, those little Sabuto pieces, like that little yeah. Sabuto game. Yeah. When I was whatever years old, my grandma said, I'll buy you any, any two teams, and I didn't know what to do. So I picked uh, the New York Cosmos and Brazil, because that's all I knew of the uh, game at that time. You, you front runner. You're a front runner. Literally. I didn't know anyone else. So that's, that's what why. I did. But the point was the Cosmos made that list of two. Yeah. So I want to talk to him about, because look, I was part of 94, and it was such an amazing time, because nobody knew really what they were doing. Right? That we weren't ready for a World Cup passion-wise in this country, but the infrastructure was here. And I think we we impressed the the foreign world, the entire world with like our facilities and how you know well we run things like that. And uh so we were able to do that easily. Uh weren't able to win that World Cup, but maybe the next time around we'll we'll see what happens. But hey look, uh we love this game. It's unpredictable. Uh best team doesn't always win. Uh the Champions League, I was watching that saying I don't know what Ancelotti's doing, but he's doing something to sort of. Uh, it wasn't exactly a low block because they seemed dangerous, not just on the counter, Real Madrid, but uh, they just seemed dangerous, and it seemed like Liverpool never got in their groove. Uh, got a little frustrated. What were your thoughts as a, as a coach, and and how would what, what were you? What was your perception of what was happening? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a, a fan of different coaches around the world, and, and and Ancelotti is is one of my all time favorites in terms of watching his teams through the years, the consistent mm-hmm. success he's had for decades now, different uh, teams, different leagues. He's the, you know he's the only coach 
to ever win uh, their the league title in in the five big European leagues. He's the only coach that's ever done that. So, wow. yeah. granted, he's had some horses. He's had the PSGs. He's had the Bayern Munichs. He's had some of the best teams. But the bottom line is he's delivered. You know, and so when you look at his team this time. And, and I guess the way he looked at it afterwards is hey, the number one priority is to kill the space in behind. So I thought they sat deeper, but you're right. Not so much a low block. It was, I thought they were going to be exposed because they were a little too open. They weren't as yeah. compact as they normally were, but they wanted to be able to stay high and, and launch Benzema's a target and then get to Vinny on the outsides and kind of counterattack in those ways. So they kept the game open, but at the same time nullified the space behind their back four. And man, they were good. They were so good on the day. And defensively, you also have a, it's an older team, but you have a very well-rested team. They had won uh, La Liga a few weeks back. And so all they've been doing for several weeks is gearing up for the physical performance of that day versus Liverpool, who had been trying to you know, fight, 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 scrap and claw all the way into the last few weeks. So you, you wonder how fresh the two teams were. Yeah. Real Madrid looked fresher. That's a good point. You know, uh, uh, Liverpool with their chase for the, the four champions, you know, it was like it, it was difficult. I, they seem tired. A little worn out. They've had to go to the well quite a bunch. Um, but, yeah, I was surprised because I think if Liverpool had put one in early, it would have changed to loosen things up. Uh, it would have been more of a shootout. But um, I, I was impressed that how dangerous they were on the counter, uh, that that young winger on the outside and then Benzema's dangerous. And even though Kanate uh, shot him, shut him down a little bit, you know, he kind of kept him sort of irrelevant there for for parts. But that that midfield, you know, with Cruz and, and – um, uh, what's his name? The Croatian Modric. Mo- Modric, yeah. You know, they just they just were smart. They, they played out of the super back. smart. Yeah, yeah, super smart. Great passes the ball. Casemiro. When Casemiro wants to play to his level, ten out of ten, he's one of the best in that position in the world. And so the number of defensive plays that he made, he broke up so many attacks. Right. And they really consolidated the space as they got closer to their 18. And those guys are so well experienced. They were able to nullify them. And, and that's very, very hard to do because, you know, you can argue Real Madrid hasn't been the best team for several rounds now, right? But right. at the same time, you're talking about a team, and this is somewhat unprecedented, that have knocked off all the big ones. They did not have an easy draw. They had PSG, Chelsea, City, and Liverpool. That is crazy. Yeah, you know, that's a good way to put it, man. They they earned it. Um, and they were the best on the day. They did what they had to do to, to win. So, hey, um, so a, cu- uh, a couple of games coming up for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, what are your thoughts as a coach? Is his lineup sort of set? Is he tweaking? Is he watching injuries? Is he watching who's at where in the season? Um, what are your thoughts on that? What, what's Burhalter going to try to do with these next Yeah. Games? Yeah, you're trying to funnel down, you know, your team. You're trying to get it down the last shoot into the World Cup cycle. You're you're now saying, okay, we've qualified. Bottom line is he won't announce it, but he he's written in X amount of names, and I think we all could have a pretty good amount of a pretty good guess of who those names are. So now he's just trying to fine tune the group, give him some confidence, give him some opponents that might be similar to what they will play in the World Cup, and then there's a couple of spots left, whether it's in the first team or in the pool in general. In terms of naming the final roster, there are some question marks. So he probably has a, a short list of questions he needs to answer between now and then. That list is short compared to where it's been the last few years. And the more efficient he is about you know dialing that in, then the better group he'll have for the start of the World Cup. You know, he's also got to deal with some injuries. Uh, who's where? Um, I don't think they'll play. You know, coming up because it'd be you know Dest and Giorena. 
Um, even Aronson was hurt. And Aronson looks like he's going to the Premier League. So uh, that's interesting. But I think more in the center back position, Robinson, uh, I think it's his ACL. So um, that's Achilles, right? No, I think we thought it was a knee. We'll have to check that out. But I think he's going to be ready, they think, by the time the cup shows up. But you know, and I know, that to get game fitness and World Cup level uh, ready, I don't know. I don't think there's enough time. So I think he's looking for another center back, whether yeah. that's, uh, you know, Zimmerman, I think, sort of solidified himself in that position. Whether he brings John Brooks back, I'm not sure. Uh, long, who knows, we'll be playing that. We'll be paired up with Zimmerman. Yeah, what you'll do, what he'll do is he'll just, as a staff, you know, they won't say this publicly, but as a staff, they'll just assume that he's not going to be ready. Uh, if he's ready, it's a bonus. But at the mm -hmm. same time, they're just going to plan as if he's not going to be able to be back. And then they'll start to create not only who is Zimmerman's partner, but what is the rotation of that? If they have to go to center back three and four, who is that? And hopefully be able to find answers without having to change how they play. And so if they can, you know, work backwards off of that, then that'll make it more preparation, a little bit more streamlined for the start. What do you think with the MLS in the season right now and how that helps with World Cup preparation? Because before, I think the season was sort of uh, in the middle of the season, you used to have to stop the World Cup. Um, but I, I think they don't get to train as much with this upcoming World Cup. Um, how does that play into to preparation? Yeah, the MLS calendar is different than the traditional calendar of, of you know, global football, right? So during the summer, we're playing through, and that has pros and cons. So right now, it's a pro because our, our guys get to play through, get a ton of games, mm -hmm. and then segue seamlessly into their World Cup cycle preparations. Hopefully. Yeah. Right, right. But they should be fit, 10 out of 10 fit. They should be in form, all that kind of stuff. Of course, there's a risk of injury, but, you know, you can't play that way. You got to play. Yeah. Um, yeah. But having said that, like there's cons too. Like, so we've had a very, very hard time coming out of CONCACAF Champions League because that's a typically a January, February time you know, time for the tournament when we're in preseason as MLS teams. So we're, we're, we're not as uh, played in as the Mexican teams are in those situations. And this is only the first time we've won with Seattle, which by the way, Seattle won the CONCACAF Champions League. Real Madrid just won the UEFA Champions League. So you have the prospect of Seattle Sounders or Real Madrid potentially in the, in the cup, uh, the, the club champion cup. Wow. That's uh, some heady stuff there, man. So it's uh, on ESPN two Wednesday, 7 PM Eastern. So uh, that will be, uh, be fun to watch. And I think, I think Chris, people should not watch it for the win, right? They should watch it basically for what Burhalter is trying to accomplish with uh, what maybe secondary tertiary players perhaps. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a friendly. So, you know, you don't want to say that the result doesn't matter. But like I said, he'll have other objectives to accomplish, uh, both individually looking at players and the collective groups and how they, you know, work together. Um, so he doesn't want to get away from his game model. He wants to kind of still enforce that, but at the same time, figure out which guys can step in and potentially either make the first 11 and or make the group that's uh, going to go to the World Cup. Yeah, and they talk about certain players you bring, uh, you carry because they have their veterans, they have experience, they're also positive within the locker room, and sometimes things can fray when, when you're kind of down. Um, and so you make those considerations as well, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the last round, if you will, of experimenting, right? Because you'll get a couple of games here where, where you can try a couple of different things, but as you get another round closer, you know, coming down the next friendlies, the next round of friendlies, that one has to be first team dialed in reps, yeah, yeah. you know? So this is maybe the last somewhat round of experimenting with a pool of players and also with certain matchups on the field and combinations.
man. A lot of combos. So uh, good luck to Greg Berhalter, Coach Berhalter. So, uh, yeah, we're pulling for it. So, uh, yeah, ESPN2 Wednesday night at 7 p.m. So, all right, let's take a break here. When we come back, uh, this is an interview with a guy you you definitely uh, want to hear from because, uh, as I said in the opening, if, if you are a soccer fan in this country, uh, this guy, I don't know how to say Well, he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's been he's been here for four decades, man, uh, and he's got a lot of stories. So uh, stick around. We have Jim Trecker coming up right after this. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. All right, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to this interview. Uh, this guy, I, you know, boy, I was intimidated when I first met him because he, uh, he was the gatekeeper. Uh, after a short stint with the, the New York Jets, um, our next guest witnessed the arrival of Pele to the Cosmos. He managed relationships with all kinds of international superstars, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Canaglia, the biggest stars in their country at the time. And they came to the United States and he was the public relations and director for, for the team. Um, and he went on to a similar role for the NASL, the old sexy NASL. So, um I met you, Jim, when you were the head of uh, World Cup 94 uh, Communications Department, uh, and it seems like such a long time ago. But uh, first of all, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks, Kevin. Really good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were talking at that uh, at that dinner for Paul Gardner, and I just looked around at the table, you know, with Tab there and uh, Sunil there and you there and Paul Gardner. It was just uh, amazing. Arnie Ramirez, just the history that was sitting there. And I think... I get annoyed sometimes when people don't remember uh, the 94 World Cup, which sort of felt like it started it all for me. But you have an even greater argument. You've been in this for four decades. So talk to us a little bit about how you started out. You're a, you're a Columbia School grad, one of my safety schools. And then you uh, and then, and you and then you, you were with the Jets for a little while. God help you. And then uh, then what happened? How'd you get into soccer from there? Um, it was it. it I guess it's one of those things where um, I, I was just in the right place at the right time. There's no magic. I was working for the Jets. We shared a training facility at Hofstra University in 1975 with the Cosmos. They, they trained on one side of the parking lot. The Jets and Namath trained on, on a different side of the parking lot. And as a result, I got to I, I sort of got to know the Cosmos people a little bit. And um, I have no idea what the real background was, but Later on in 1975, somebody walked across the parking lot and asked if I wouldn't mind meeting with Clive Toy and seeing if I'd join the Cosmos. And um, I tell you, obviously I did. Um, and and to this day, I'm sure there's some old, old time colleagues of mine from that era of the NFL who says, what the hell did this guy do? Doing. Leaving the NFL for soccer? Best move of my life. Yeah, nobody was ever doing it. In fact, when I was working at ESPN, I always had a producer who was working with me, who didn't care about soccer. They was looking to get to something else. They were looking to get to basketball or football or baseball. And it used to annoy me. Um, I was like, can I get a soccer person? So, and, the, and your brother wrote for the Hartford Current as well. I read him, you know, growing up. So did you guys have soccer in your background growing up or, or it was just that walk across the parking lot? No, I always had soccer in my, in my life. Um, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, and at that time in the 50s and early, uh, actually 50s, very early 60s, before I went off to college, Connecticut was a very strong scholastic soccer state. It was a significant sport back then. And I fell in to the, to the era of like high school soccer 
Uh, I was a more of an administrator. I think the I think the real term is manager. And yeah, I did slice some oranges and so forth. But I was always always taken by the international aspect of the game. Used to listen to BBC and get the scores on the World Service back in the real old days when that's about all you got. So it's always been part of the part of uh, part of the Trekker family, and has uh, and it, for a long long time was considered. Boy, there there are a few oddballs over there uh, uh, in that Trekker family, but. Uh, look where we are now in 2022, and I, 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 I prefer to think that we were pioneers rather than. Oh, I you you definitely were pioneers, and uh, I, I was saying to Chris before you got on that you know 94 was like it was like the Wild West. I don't think we were ready to really try and pull it off, but the infrastructure was there, and we did it. Now, Chris, Chris, uh, I will say this about Connecticut: I think Connecticut did well soccer wise because of all the prep schools that were there, and that was it was a sort of a, a little bit of an elitist sport back then. But Chris, Chris grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So, Chris, what was your experience with the with the first time you sort of were aware of soccer? You mentioned it a little bit in the opening, but yeah, no, it's good to talk to Jim because you know Jim is I have a I haven't met you, Jim, but through all the years, uh, I've seen your name a million times. So right. it's 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 happy to finally, you know, have a have a word with you. And and I appreciate what you've done in the game because I think as we're all we're all not 21 years old, right? So we're all part of this generation where we help build the sport. Uh, and that's something that even now with my younger assistant coaches, you know, we we always try to hold on to this idea that, you know, we've we've come a long way in soccer. Uh, and a lot of that comes to the work that, you know, we've all done, this generation has done, and, and Jim in his own way, maybe not through the playing or the coaching, but in all these other ways has really helped build the sport. So I really appreciate that. And I thank you for that because we're all in this together in that sense. I do have a question about your NASL days, though. Like when you cross, you know, you're talking about Namath and the Jets and you cross over to the NASL. And we all know how the NASL ended up, which that it didn't work out financially. But were you thinking, hey, this is for sure going to work out? Or were you concerned about that move that you made when you started at the NASL? Flat out, it was something I could never, ever have said no to. Yeah, the NFL was on the move. It was, you know, it was a long time ago, but still, the NFL was becoming huge. Namath was huge. The Jets were huge. Nevertheless, this was Pelé. This was a, a chance to work in soccer uh, and get the privilege of almost coming in at the, at the top level. Uh, so there's no way I was ever going to say say no to that opportunity. Did I think that the league would last? You know, I, I really don't know. I didn't think it would wobble as badly as it did or as quickly as it did. Um, I thought it was, was there to stay um, and wanted to be part of it. Quite frankly, just wanted to be part of it. There's nothing, there's nothing more mysterious about it. Sometimes you get a you, you get a shot in life at something that that you're willing to take a take a gamble on. In 1975, I was only 30 years old, uh, so it wasn't like I was making the wow. last career move, so to speak, in life. I said, "What the hell? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try this. is This is Palais. I can you know travel around the world. This is a dream come true to have the, to have that opportunity. I never set out to work in soccer. It wasn't my educational background. It wasn't a career path. Uh, it just just sort of sort of happened. I mean, you made an interesting point, though, that we're the people on this uh, podcast are all kind of kind of uh, of the same category. We're, we're, not, we're not 21 years old. We're not 16 years old who, who, who came to the game because they fell in love with Messi or anything like that. It's so hard for people nowadays um, to realize how barren the landscape really was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
we we tell 1988 when we won the bid for the World Cup of, of 94, July 4th, 1988. I was there. Uh, Tom Meredith from the Federation was there. He was their communications director. And guys, I got to tell you, we had five phone calls to make afterwards. Five interested media. I mean, that's people do that's not it. realize that it, it was, in fact, a front page story in The New York Times. But it's not like we had to hold a press conference in a ballroom. It just wasn't wasn't that way. And even when 94, uh, the early the run up to 94 in the late 80s and the early 90s, it was a tough one. The biggest question that I faced damn near every day was though the World Cup, it sounds right, where is it being held? And you had to start right from the baseline. Right. Yeah, back then, 52 games. Uh, nine or 10 cities, because at that point we didn't know when, how, how many cities, 31 days. I mean, it, the educational effort that we had to put in, I think, is is not remembered because of 94, because of the 96 Olympics, because of 99 women, because of MLS. If you're if you're under 35 years old, you probably have no no understanding of how recently <laughs> the game was very so much on the fringe. Right. You know, it's, I always try to tell people, like, if you have to explain American football to someone, you realize it's like it's daunting. It's daunting. Uh, we watch it growing up as kids. So we it's in our DNA. But to explain it to a foreigner is always bizarre. So it's soccer. I felt the same thing, not only trying to explain the game to people, but there was that anti-soccer bias. Very huge. It's still around a little bit, but it was huge with, you know, uh, Soccer will never make it. I think uh, Jack Kemp in Congress said, uh, you know, it's a foreign communist game. I mean, it's absurd stuff that we think about that you guys were were battling. Let me ask you this, though. Did you learn anything in your um, dealings with the NASL uh, on how to better prepare the country or get the word out about the World Cup or in your your bid? Because I think you wrote the bid, didn't you? Uh, part of it. I wouldn't go that far, but I did write part of it. It was one of the one of the guys who read the entire thing from start to finish uh, uh, in kind of an editing capacity and making sure that it did it, did it make sense, you know, some other right. virgin eyes on things. Does it, are you really saying what you're trying to say here? Um, I think that the NASL, even though it had an ignominious end in 84, um, did contribute to growing some media interest, very quiet but some interest so that when there was a big story to tell, like World Cup 94, there were a few people we'd all gotten to know and that we could go turn back to and, and, and bring them into the fold. Um, 90, see, the NESL, we, as you mentioned, we had, we had Beckenbauer, we had Carlos Alberto, Canalia, Cruyff, Naskins, Vim Reisbergen, uh, George Best, Bobby Moore. Uh, there were some big stars in this country. And we learned, we, and this is, this is a larger we in the, in the sport, uh, learned how to deal with some mega superstars who transcended anything. And no way in the world I ever demean the stardom of a Joe Namath or a Matt Snell or, or some yeah. of the other people I was around at the NFL. Heavens no. But this was a different, this was a different level uh, when you had to s sneak a guy into the back door of the kitchens in a hotel, Pelé. Be, yeah. You couldn't take it out in public, to, just the throngs of people, whole, whole different thing. I, I've always thought that back in that era, you, you kind of had Pelé, Muhammad Ali, who was uh, beginning to be past the prime. Yeah. Um, 
maybe Liza Minnelli, Frank Sinatra. I don't know if there are any bigger names in the world at, yeah. at, at that time. So we learned during the NASL era a little bit uh, what some of this stuff meant. Exactly, exactly who Franz Beckenbauer was. I knew, but it was fun to let other people find out. Right. Chris? No, I appreciate you bringing up Liza Minnelli because Kevin's a very big <laughs> fan of Liza. I am. I'm doing yeah. jazz hands right now. I always do. Yeah. Uh, but my, my question was, when you when you started, uh, when you see now MLS uh, beginning to take off in those first few years, MLS 1.0, with, with your context of knowing NASL and knowing uh, the, the World Cup bid and what how that was all done, were, were you concerned about the start of MLS or did you feel like, oh, well, this is a different model that's going to work? How did you look at that based on your perspective? I thought for sure that it was a model that would work, but I wasn't sure for how long it would work. And, and I still have, it's been a long time now, so I guess it really doesn't matter what I think in 2022 because mm-hmm. it's still working. But the single entity thing was, was the only way to go then. Uh, if anything, the NASL became so top heavy and so financially uh, out, of, out of whack due to a couple of owners. I do not blame, I don't blame the owners. I think there's other reasons why the NASL ultimately didn't succeed. But we had to go very carefully in 1996. It was it would have been extremely naive to think that, wow, World Cup has happened um, and the Olympic Games are happening uh, and therefore we're over the top. No, I had been there in 1978 when Phil Woosnam would go around the country. And this is the honest to God truth. Love, God love Phil. But uh, and would tell people from a podium, we're, we're going to be bigger than the NFL. And I would just cringe and say, cringe. Phil, please don't. Don't don't say that. First of all, we don't have to be, right. <laughs> and we're probably not gonna be. Yeah, we're and we put a mark on our back because then they start to gun for you a, a little bit, you know, which is what they did. Because you know, I know my foot a football coach in my hometown was like, "There's not enough athletes for a football team and a soccer team. They're trying to replace us." Um, <laughs> a lot of what's going on in the country right now, and I'm not going to get political, but I would say, you know, there was you know uh, a definite bias, and you guys had to, uh, to go up against it. Um, and you talk about nope. I could, I, you know, uh, I met Joe Namath. We talked about this at the dinner. Uh, what a soccer player he would have been. I I have this theory, and I've said it to people before. Um, he talked to me about it. Uh, you know, we had a discussion in a in a gym one day, and I mean, he was uh, you know three sport athlete. You know, uh, a scratch golfer. He's an amazing athlete. What is he about six two? And he had that long yeah. hair and the sunglasses in his baseball high school picture. I mean, what was it like dealing with him? Um, you know that this the because you had Steve Ross and uh, what was it Time Warner behind you? What was the, the company uh, that Ross uh, and the Cosmos who they owned Warner Communications? Warner Warner Communications. You know, so that was the sexiness that you guys had. There was a definite international field. Guys would you know Mick Jagger would helicopter into the Cosmos games and everything. Yeah. But um, but I, I think uh, you know I think dealing with. Joe Namath helped you start to deal with Carlos Alberto because I was with Carlos Alberto in a bar and the people just lost their minds. It was unbelievable. Uh, There's no no question. I I think that one of the reasons that the Cosmos reached out to me was I was I was young and I was an assistant at the Jets um, and maybe maybe um, willing to talk, so to speak. And um, I had experience working with superstars. And, and I, I, I think they would, I think anybody at the Cosmos in 1975 would admit that when Pelé got there, they had no idea, whoa, what the tsunami was going right, to be like. Right. And, and I, I think 
my familiarity with the New York media at the highest level because of Joe and the Jets uh, gave them some comfort. I knew what I was doing. I, I don't know if they were right or not, but but I did have a heck of a time with the Cosmos in the end. Yeah, and I tell you, with Pele, it permeated pretty much every level of American society. Even my Irish granny would be like, oh, that's the Pele, man. That's the, oh, that's Pele. Yeah, she, everybody knew. Chris? Yeah, dude, I didn't know your Irish grandmother was Jamaican. Um, <laughs> hey, man. Raised on <laughs> I said we're from the islands, not the island. <laughs> I had a soccer question for, for Jim. Like, when you talk about these players, Carlos Alberto, Pele, all these guys that came together on this team. What's your soccer opinion of how that team, and I know they were a little bit older when they all came together. If you drop them into MLS nowadays, how do you think that team would do? Ah, the game's too fast now and they were a little bit too old. Or do you, would you say that they would be a dominant team in MLS? Well, that's, a, that's a coach's question, Jim. Yeah. That's a coach's question he's hitting you with. Yeah, but I've got, I've got an answer. All right. I, that's think, good. I, think, they, I think they would do extremely well. I think that Let's, let's face it, with Bogachevich, Tony Field, Tony Field, not a great individual player, but as a member of a team, Bogachevich in the middle of the middle of the field, Bobby Smith in the back, Bob Rigby, uh, and, and then others in goal, um, Pelé up front. Uh, we had, in the late 70s, a team that was a super club long before there was the the Real Madrid, the Barcelonas of the 2000s, and maybe uh, the 2022 Manchester City, Liverpool sort of brigade. We were that type of team 45 years ago. And I, at even if you took those players right and put them into a league right now, they'd do pretty darn well. Uh, Beckenbauer, Beckenbauer was still at his best. I never saw the guy amazing. sweating. Yeah. After he was always he was always in position three seconds before the ball got there. I don't know what he could see, but it was something. He's like Maldini, but also Chris. They said that uh, during the Cosmos and when Beckenbauer was there, he never went in the middle with five v two. He never had a he never oh, had yeah a never lose you know? it yeah never lose it. So let me ask you this: so all those superstars that were there and in the Cosmos uh, zeitgeist, guess whose poster was up on my uh, my my bedroom? Rick, Ricky Davis. Yeah, so, yeah. Talk a little about Ricky Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was he like to deal with it? Because it seemed like there was a lot of pressure for a young American kid who they were trying to make a, not an example of, but sort of throw an opportunity for public relations and whatever. And the kid had a sink or swim. He came, he came in, I think a little bit overawed. He was extremely young. The first time I met him at, at the press conference, I didn't even, something tells me he might've even been 17, but he was certainly no more than, no more than 18 uh, when he came in. And suddenly he's thrown into the deep end of the pool with with this team of superstars. Uh, and he did very, very well. And he was embraced very well by everybody because Ricky Davis is one of the quality people I've ever met in sports. And I, and I think that that went wow, along, that a along lot. way. A lot, he came in with no chip on his shoulder. He came in willing to learn. He came in willing to step aside, as it were. Uh, and, and, and you wonder, he's a product of a generation where you weren't made into a, a can't miss, you know, quote, first round draft choice by the time you're 15. That's not what he came out of. He came out of AYSO and so forth and was a humble, great guy. I saw him, uh, I don't know, I guess about two years ago. And it was the last time I saw Ricky, still the, the same first class five-star guy. And I think that made him fit in. 
Yeah, yeah, he was humble, and he owns a steakhouse. I, I think outside of Kansas City now. I said yeah, yeah. when we had him on the show, I want to, I want to get him on. But you know, like the '94 Cup and how that sort of trailblazed. I don't want people to forget it because a lot of people uh, didn't make a lot of money doing it. They, they did it for their, a labor of love and the belief that this game could, could ultimately happen. I don't want that to be well, the, whole, the whole bid. The whole bid committee, the whole bid process was put together by, by volunteers. I mean, I, I, I received some expense money back. And 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 what I wouldn't even call a stipend, and, yeah. and I somebody complained about it. We we were on that because if we could if we could win this bid, then we we knew uh, that that good stuff was going to happen. I know there's some people who think, gee, it was um, a big risk. Holy cow! What if you can't do it? It's funny. I never had a thought that we couldn't do it. Right. It wasn't going to be easy, but we could do it. My God, this country. We. I mean, we'd already put on you know 30 Super Bowls or something, and. Uh, not to cross sports too much, but we actually do know how to do big sports events in this country. And I know that the soccer fans were there. The soccer fans were there. They came to Cosmos games. They came to Tampa Bay. They came to Portland, Seattle, San Jose. Um, We knew it was there. And a lot of people who didn't know about soccer back then said, thought we were a little bit nuts. And I, I, I think some of us just very quietly said, it's okay. Just wait, just wait. Well, luckily we were, Look, the work that you guys did early on has built an infrastructure that is being, um, you know, grown on top of. And I think, um, look, Jim, for guys like us that have been through this, it's not happening as fast as we wanted. But as we look back on the progress that's happened, it has certainly taken root. And I think uh, guys uh, like yourself, you were a big part of that. So I want to thank you for uh, for joining us on OTB, talking to us today. I'm going to have you back on just to talk about Joe Namath, because that's one of that's one of my, I just love to talk about Joe Willie, man. And I, I'm sure you could fill a book with all the stories on him. But uh, we're talking soccer today, uh, you know, from everybody in this country. Chris, you probably want to say something, but man, thank you for everything you did to, to make the game a possibility in, in this country. Yeah, no, we have. All the matter of love for the game, you know. Chris? No, I was just going to say, we have all these different types of people in the Hall of Fame in American soccer. And, and one of those categories is builder, you know, and so. Jim is certainly one of those. And, you know, again, thank you for all you've done for soccer in our country. And Jim, by the way, you were, you were instrumental in, in uh, getting that set up again, the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, when it opened in 20, I came on board in 2016 to try to help as a the, the quasi-historian for the, uh, uh, went down through all the archives, uh, many trips into the archives, and, and I, I guess I guess played a fairly substantial role in designing, not designing, I'm not an art guy, but, but planning what the exhibits would be. Uh, and what what artifacts to show? And I, uh, when it when it opened, I don't know if you've had if you guys have had the chance to be down there, but if you haven't, you got to see it because it it really it really is really is good. And if you go down there, you realize the sport did not spring full blown in 1994 or or even in 1975 with Pelé. Right, it's longer earlier than some pretty good stuff. It is. It's a wonderful history. And you are a big part of it, my friend, Jim Tracker. Thank you so much for joining us on Over the Ball. We hope to talk to you again, my friend. Great, my pleasure. Thanks. Wow, that uh, that was fun, man. Little memory lane, and also look—he's working in the Hall of Fame, and that was just two years ago. So the guy's still well, ten years ago now, but still hitting soccer things. It was great to talk to him, though. Some of those things I had actually forgotten about. Yeah, the Jets part's interesting, and uh, I want to ask you about the Joe Namath piece. You said you ran into well, him, but there's a soccer story there. Yeah, well, first of all, how can you have an interview without you know talking about Joe Namath and Liza Minnelli in the same <laughs> same sentence? I think. Um, yeah, man, I, I have a great story with Joe Namath, and uh, I was at a celebrity soccer tournament, I know a celebrity golf tournament, 
where I was one of the celebrities, which always pisses off whoever I'm in the foursome with, because they're like, you know, they pay all this money to be with a celebrity. And, you know, you're going to do stand up. So you're a celebrity, but they're pissed when they're like, hey, I wonder who our celebrity is. We're driving out in the carts. I'm like, yeah, it's me, guys. Who the hell, who the hell are you? I'm like, Kevin, it's like, I'm more famous than you. I, I do local car commercials. So uh, I was at one of those things. And I, I worked out and I went into the steam bath after. And as I'm walking in the steam baths, I just hear some, a voice go, well, you look like you played some ball. And I'm like, well, that's a weird thing to say to somebody in the steam room. I'm picking. <laughs> and then I look over and it's Joe Willie. I go, Joe Willie, man, how you doing? He's like, good, man. He's sitting in the corner, you know, looking, you know, what, uh, not this huge imposing figure. And he was so nice. And we started to talk. And I, when I told him I was a soccer player, he said, oh, man, I would have loved to have played that game. You know, he goes, my father, you know, but we were such in football country in Pennsylvania. He goes, that's all we you know, played for the most part with you had to be on the football team. But he goes, my father's, they were Hungarian and, and you know, the big soccer tradition there. And he said, but I uh, gravitated to football, basketball, baseball. Um, but he said, boy, I, I, uh, I wish I had played that game. I said, man, you, you're the perfect size for what is he? Six, two. Yeah. Incredibly athletic, mobile, fast, uh, before all the knee injuries. But, um, what I noticed about Joe Namath was that the professional athletes, treated him like people treat professional athletes like he was just one a big cut above like even the even the professional football players and basketball players were in awe of joe namath so i meet him in the steam room and um and then we you know and i watch how he treats the guys with the towel he talks to everybody and he's very nice bobby Orr's like that as well another one of my sort of you know bucket list idols and um so that night even before i performed i'm in line and dr j was there and so I walked up to Dr. J and I said, hey, doc, I said, my name is Kevin Flynn. I said, uh, I went to UMass uh, after you did. But, uh, you know, I, I heard that you only played in the JV games because you were a freshman. Those are the rules back then. And you couldn't play in the varsity game. So everybody would come to see the JV game. And then when the varsity game came, everybody would leave. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not, not too proud of that one. I said, well, it's not your fault. You know, you couldn't play. Yeah. So I said, oh, great. Well, it's so great to meet you. And he said, oh, great. So I took my food and I sat down. And he followed me and sat next to me. So now I'm like, okay, shit, I have nothing left to talk about. Oh, my God. I'm sitting with Dr. J. So I start talking to Dr. J. And uh, he's like, you know, he's like almost a Zen Buddhist. You know, he's all chill and all that experience and what an amazing man. And he looks over my shoulder and he goes, uh, hey, Joe. And I'm like, no, no. No, and I turn, and Joe Namath is sitting next to me. So ah. I've got Joe Namath. I've got Joe Namath on my right, Doctor J on my left, and then people are like, "Who are you?" And I'm like, oh, "I tell dick jokes at golf tournaments. That's what I do." <laughs> but Doctor J said that his uh, his grandsons play. So uh, well, yeah, yeah, so yeah, we've had this conversation for for a long time in our country, right? Is is that could we get the best athletes in our country to pick soccer? You know, yeah. and so to hear Joe Namath say that, you almost go, oh, man, I wish you would have played, obviously. And, and and now, OK, maybe, yeah, maybe we are getting some of the best athletes to, to play soccer and we're closing the gap on the rest of the world. But, I mean, you look at countries where you pick one, France. I mean, they're all 6'2". They're all like LeBron, right. you know what I mean? Or I should right. say Kobe, right? Like just yeah. lean and can run all day and fit and all that stuff and trying to get our athletes of that mold to play our sport. You know, that's when maybe our national team goes yet another level higher. And we're starting to knock on that door. But it would have been fun to have uh, 
Dr. J and uh, Joe Willie on the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, it certainly would have. And uh, yeah, I, I was talking about like a Messi reminds me of like a Barry Sanders, like try knocking him off the ball, man. You know, yeah. just uh, and and I think we're getting, like you said, that national team that's playing uh, this next week in a couple of games, it, it is more diverse. Uh, it really reflects what America was. Jim talked about it a little bit with the Connecticut thing. Connecticut used to get all the fancy prep school kids would go there. And it was sort of a moneyed sport back then or an international sport. You know, the kid from England or Scotland or somewhere, you know, or Nigerian king would come over and play, you know, for Choate or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So those those kids filled out the sort of the college rosters. And, and then St. Louis had their thing. Jersey had their thing. But everybody else was playing catch up. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, with Jim, like when you say, you know, he knows so much about the game over these last decades. He must have amazing stories that we could go on for hours with, right? Because I mean, I think back to the old school baseball days where Babe Ruth did whatever he did off the field and none yeah. of the reporters said anything, right? Yeah, hot and, dogs and, and hookers. Yeah, and we're in a completely generation, different generation now. But he might have been in that 70s time period in that overlap, you know, where a lot of those Cosmo guys probably did what they needed to do or wanted to do off the field. And he probably knows a ton of those stories. Uh, firsthand knowledge had a front row seat. Look, I've been on movie sets and stand up sets and you know television sets and uh, no one, I've never seen anyone get have women thrown at them like those soccer players did back in the day when I walked into a bar with Naskins or Alberto, you know, in a group of guys from the yeah. camp. Uh, it, it was pandemonium, man. It was pandemonium. And, you know, this guy's none of those guys brought their wives with them. You know, they all stayed back in Europe. You know, I'm going to go here for just two months and have vacation and kickball and make some money. That's yeah. a good Irish accent too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's a different crowd than the Larry David crowd you recently yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and I told you he talked about bogey, and I always tell the story about bogey. Uh bogey would play in a black sweatshirt with a fish his cosmo shirt over it and black sweatpants. And he was by far the most visionary creative person on the pitch, just yeah. to spread balls and play them out. And after the game, every one of the Cosmos were so good about signing autographs and everything to the kids, all of them, you know? Right. And then the kids would walk up to Bogey, and as soon as he walked off the pitch, he would light up a cigarette, and the kids would walk over and go, Bogey, Bogey, can, can you sign this? He'd go, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> 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 and even then I thought, that is so cool uncool I'm not yeah sure what, what I like more. <laughs> well maybe that's why you had the ricky davis poster not the bogey yeah, poster yeah. hey you know now i'm getting now i'm getting older i think bogey had more fun to tell you the truth <laughs> ricky. so uh, it was great to hear those nice words about ricky davis too though because it, it you know for an american kid to see an american and look this is my complaint always about uh, the broadcast booths man it's just there's not any americans in there and um you know clint clint dempsey's great put him on the champions league one man i, yeah. I don't understand in it at a French guy, a, an English guy, a, you know, she's English. It's like, it's absurd to me. Not a single American represented in that broadcast. Like, like we don't deserve it. We can't talk about it, you know? So it's just annoying to me. Yeah. And I agree about Clint Dempsey. He's got a, a I mean, he's a, he's a unique personality, but he brings an yeah. angle to it. That is really soccer specific that, that I like hearing, you know, that perspective uh, of where he's been. And I get it like that, the crew that you're talking about, I mean, look, these guys have won Champions Leagues, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So it's, I get right, it. So put it's, one or two of them different. on. Yeah, but put yeah, exactly. On yeah, find a blend because that would be a good way of doing it. And, you know, one of the things with stand-up comedy is it takes you about four or five years, six years to find who you are so that you're talking on stage as the same as you would be talking in a living room or whatever, that, that 
you know, becoming comfortable that way. And one thing that most of us are is as we're growing up is insecure and we don't know. And you go into a tryout or whatever, you're so self-conscious. Clint Dempsey knows who he is. And that's what I've always loved about him. He doesn't give a shit what people think. I, this is who I am. This is what I do. And that comes across in his commentary. He knows the game. He's played it at the highest level. And he's a badass. And he also just speaks his mind. And that's what you need. Um, and so I think it takes broadcasters a long time to get there, almost like like a, like a stand-up comic, to know who you are and what your true voice is. And I think like when one comes out like that, recognize it by putting it in a booth. With an American player in there, CBS, uh, you know. Yeah, and then he, he and ESPN <laughs> FC, you know. Yeah, and he needed that to become the player that he became. You right. know that that attitude, that personality, and that confidence. I totally agree, and and, and he's it's refreshing that way to see his and he love he he enjoys what he's doing, and he loves to talk about the game in a serious way as well as much as he's smiling, and that balance really comes off in a really good way. Hey, you know, I was in St. Louis. Uh, we talked about it with my daughter's graduation. I talked to Ty Keogh, and he was talking to me about uh, Bernie James. Do you remember the name Bernie James? Yeah, he's up in and, Seattle, right? Yeah, he's in Seattle, and he was a, he was a player players feared in MISL, uh, and he's got all kinds of stories. So I'm going to reach out to him and, uh, and talk to him a little bit as well uh, because, I don't know, we got to remember where we came from here in this country, so not to sound like an old man. But uh, all right, brother. So, uh, what do you got this week? Your 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 athletes are gone now. Yeah, yeah, kicking into uh, summer plans and and getting ready because everyone kind of reports back in the in August, and so we're uh, you know talking to the the student athletes about what their plans are for the summer and how they're going to balance whatever they're doing, whether it's classwork or internships or jobs with you know summer fitness and all that stuff. So kind of laying out those plans right now. How about you? You, you have another show coming up? I go on the road uh, for this entire month. Uh, the entire month of June, I'm gone. I'm in Key West this weekend at the Key West Comedy Club and then at the theater there uh, on Sunday doing the one-man uh, play, Fear of Heights. Then I go back north, three nights in Connecticut. Then uh, I go to Jamaica, speaking of places. Perfect. You should invite right. your Irish grandma. Okay. Uh, welcome. Kevin's my grandson. <laughs> hey. You know, and hey, I said this before. I'm going to say it again. I want to see what you think about this one. When I heard the Jamaican national anthem, it was like Oompa Loompa band with tuba and everything. And I, I tweeted out, hey, I think it should be reggae. And someone tweeted back, that's racist, which is like, what? Come on, man. I think I've said this to you before. Like people are just with their fingers on the trigger, just trying to say racist, sexist, homophobic. You know, it's just annoy the shit out of me, you know? So I got to <laughs> talk so to them. When you go on the road, let me ask you, are you doing uh, the one-man show or a combination of stand-up and the one-man show? Well, this week in Key West, I'm doing my stand-up uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then I'm staying. Sunday, I'm doing the matinee Fear of Fights at the theater there. Got so it. It's a mixture. Then when I go back east, I go to Connecticut for three nights, uh, different theaters. Uh, that's Fear of Fights. Uh, Got it. Jamaica, it's a 50th birthday party that, you know. I'll be speaking at, and then um, uh, to Nantucket to rehearse for your fights before I get ready for Edinburgh, because I go to awesome. Edinburgh for all of August. Yeah, awesome! Yeah. I just finished the George Carlin special. You've seen that oh already? Oh my god! Yeah, it's, it's just, oh, you know, someone asked me to to record something about it, and uh, you know, what was your favorite bit? And mine was his bit about he did it for comic relief. His bit about stuff. Yeah. Everybody's got stuff. It's all about buying stuff. He goes, yeah. even your house, it's like a, it's a place to put your stuff. You yeah. get up in an airplane, you go up in the air, you look down, and there it is, all little piles of stuff. 
And what I found amazing about it was you're laughing your ass off because it's so true. Then at the end, he turns it back to what the actual uh, event is for. He goes, hey, man, these people don't have any stuff. Give them some of your stuff. It was like, oh, man, you know, just when comedy can do that, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, that was my first album, Class Clown. Um, yeah, I must have listened to that you know, a thousand times. So yeah, and I, I I've seen him live twice, but like with decades in between. Like I saw him when I was in college. He came to my college, mm-hmm. and I was one of the only guys in my group to get a ticket. And I just went. I think I went solo to be honest, just to listen to him. Like most of your dates, I'm sure. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and then and then again, just most recently in Hermosa, he came to the comedy club just to work on some stuff. You know, not recently, not recently. He's he's dead. Man. Well, yeah, I know, I know, but somewhat recently, but while he was alive. Okay, yes, how about that? <laughs> right. Well, for me, for me, what, what was amazing was how he struggled with. Uh, he was intensely self questioning, which I thought was is amazing yeah. because you're George Carlin. He blows us all away, but he had some lean periods um, where he wrote some sort of just kind of word. Smith kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but then he came back with a vengeance. One of either, I think Cheech Marin said, oh yeah, George Carlin is inconsequential. We do the new type of comedy now. Now, if you look at Cheech Marin, I love those albums, but compared to George Carlin, give me a break. Yeah. The, stuff he's, the stuff he does now, it's being used by the left and the right in this country to justify certain things, religion and money and abortion and everything else. It's amazing. Yeah, ahead of his time, how he looked at you know, climate change, how he looked at government, how he looked at, you know, censorship. I mean, ahead of his time. Unbelievable. Brilliant. Right when I right when I started this the stand up and learn program, the kids, you know, comedy program for at the festival, teach the little ones how to do stand up. Uh, I, I was watching one of his videos and he's like, Yeah, whenever they're mentioning kids, follow the money and somebody's getting screwed somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh great. So uh yeah, I, I watched the first half. I gotta watch the second half. So um and I think it's just when he's about to have his reemergence again. Yes. Fertile period of writing stuff. But got up every morning and wrote. So um so good stuff. As did Jim Trecker. How's that for a segue? Wow. You um, closed that loop beautifully. I tell you. So uh all right, man. Well, uh good to get caught up. Chris, uh we'll watch the national team tomorrow night and in, in this run and uh see what the progress is. And again, everybody out there watching the game, it's not really to win, it's to you know, we want to win, but you want to figure out who's playing where, what do we have in reserves, who's gonna make the final cut, probably like the five last five spots or so is what um coach Berhalter is looking at. So look at it that way. So, all right, everybody, for Jim Trecker, uh, thanks, buddy. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope to see him again and get some more stories. I want to get those Joe Namath stories. Uh, for Chris Shamides, I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time, everybody, on OTB. 